this case, he's saying these people will undermine your joy. So who are these people? Well, the first challenge of the early Christianity was a group of people called Judaizers. These were Jewish people, some of them Pharisees, who believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but they didn't want to let go of any of the requirements of the old covenant. So what they did is they took righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of your sins, Jesus is the Messiah, and then they coupled it with an earthly goal, and that is Israel will become its own nation once again if we hold to the covenant, okay? okay? Now, this is why Paul wrote the entire book of Romans, to address that issue and say, that's not true, it's incongruent. And yet... Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Salty Pastor Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you learn and grow in your faith. It is a journey of faith that you must take. It is not something you can opt out of. You're either growing or <laughs> shrinking in your faith at any given time. But we want to come alongside to help yes. you grow your faith. Mm -hmm. We want to help you to learn to critically think for yourself so that you know what you believe and why you believe it. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, life's too short to be shallow. You want to be a person of substance. Amen. And the best way to do that is to be growing your faith. So my <laughs> name is Jesse Mayor. I'll be your host. But we cannot do the Salty Pastor podcast without the Salty Pastor himself, Dr. Douglas <laughs> So good to be here with all of you, and I'm excited about this uh, year-long theme about uh, the kingdom of God, and the way we kicked it off is studying the book of Philippians, and I've been really uh, uh, pleased with a bunch of the stuff, and it's just so great. Every time I go and study the book of Philippians, I always learn something new. It gets gets deeper and richer. And it's such a practical book. It's right? a practical like, book. Well, what I love about it is on one level, it's like, wow, it's just so practical. It's about joy and friendship mm. and, and how to treat other people in a loving way. And you think, oh, wow, that's just really practical, simple advice. But then what you realize is he roots it in some of the most important, critical, biblical doctrine that cuts to the very mm. core of who we are as human beings. And, and it's just that is what allows you to enjoy the practical side of joy and life and friendships and, and relationships has to be rooted in something real and, and tangible needs, and, needs a foundation and deep. That's yeah. Strong, right? And boy, he does such a great job of that in the book. Well, we are in our study of Philippians. Mm -hmm. This is the part of our year-long theme of the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. And we want to understand what the kingdom of God is so we can live in it while we are here on this earth. Mm -hmm. Philippians is a great start because it lays the groundwork, like you said, that strong yeah. foundation mm -hmm. on how to be in this world and live in the kingdom yeah, of God. it shows us really in a lot of ways how to experience joy, even though the kingdom of this world causes so many problems and struggles and issues for us. Mm, absolutely. So we started off by discovering the mm -hmm. main theme of this book. It's found in verse 6 of chapter 1, yeah. and that's mm -hmm. being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. Then mm -hmm. he, he says it again in, in chapter 2, two yeah. verse 13. 13, yeah. He mm -hmm. says, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Now, I am interested and curious mm -hmm. to see what he does in chapter three. Yeah, where does it go from here? Yeah. Yeah. Well, joy comes from God, obviously, but it comes into your life because of what God is doing in you. 
Okay. And chapter three is basically uh, a culmination of chapter one and two. He's saying, you know, rejoice, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. He says, my affection for you. He talks about Timothy and Epaphroditus and how incredibly mm. important those friendships and relationships are, those working relationships, the family of the church and so forth. He goes, so all of this truth brings joy in your life. However, you need to safeguard it. Okay, you need to protect it. And he says this in chapter uh, three, verse one, he says further. So in chapter two, he talks about therefore. Mm -hmm. And so he's adding on to the conclusion by going further in his point. And that is, this is what he says. My brothers and sisters rejoice in the Lord. So you notice how he's saying it's rejoice. We could be joyful, right? It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you. And it is a safeguard for you. So notice what he's saying. He's saying, look, express your joy, walk in joy, live in joy, but you have to safeguard your joy, which is really strange because he goes from this be joyful and happy to a throw down insult in the next <laughs> verse. Okay. So he says, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to say this to you again. It's a safeguard for you. Watch out, verse 2, for those dogs, mm. those evildoers, those <laughs> mutilators of the flesh. Man, Paul is throwing it down. For it, He goes on to say, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, mm. though I myself have reasons for such confidence. So what he's doing is he's saying, if you want to safeguard your joy and continue to rejoice, you need to know how it can be undermined. And these people are the dirty dogs, you know, mutilators of the flesh that are going to pull you away from Jesus and the joy of a mature faith. So in essence, what he's saying, you cannot grow to maturity, to a strong faith, being around the wrong people. Mm. That is really important, very and yet important. we tend not to think about that very much, right? We tend to just, well, whoever likes me will be my friend, <laughs> you know? Well, that's kind of a low bar, right. and particularly in this case, he's saying these people will undermine your joy. So who are these people? Well, the first challenge of the early Christianity was a group of people called Judaizers. These were Jewish people, some of them Pharisees, who believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but they didn't want to let go of any of the requirements of the old covenant. So what they did is they took righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of your sins, Jesus is the Messiah, and then they coupled it with an earthly goal, and that is Israel will become its own nation once again if we hold to the covenant, okay? okay? Now, this is why Paul wrote the entire book of Romans, to address that issue and say, that's not true, it's incongruent. And yet what they did is they went around and they said, look, if you want to be a follower of Christ, you have to become a Jew, right? And the biggest thing you had to do when you became a Jew is get circumcised, Right. So that's why he says you're a mutilator of the flesh. So that was the first challenge that Paul was addressing. And in Acts chapter 15, the entire early church decided to refute this position. They said, well, you don't have to become Jewish. You don't have to 
follow the dietary laws. You don't have to get circumcised. It just, they basically send out a letter to all of the Gentiles being converted into Christianity, followers of Christ. It simply says in that letter uh, that was given to Paul and Barnabas and the other leaders to go back to the Gentile churches that says, abstain from sexual immorality and avoid meat that was sacrificed to an idol. So, so in essence, you know, they just took this massive amount of Jewish law and set it aside. Okay. Okay. The first church This is called the first church council in Acts chapter 15. You can go read about it. Now I want you to notice something here. That's really interesting. Okay. When you go back and you see, uh, after the day of Pentecost, when the church was planted in Acts chapter one, it says, Jesus says, hey, I want you to go and be my witnesses. Then he ascends into heaven, and they go back to Jerusalem, and they're praying in the upper room. Right. Then, on the day of Pentecost, which a massive festival happening in the city of Jerusalem. The, the streets are packed. And it says, like, a, a, a violent wind and tongues of fire descend on the apostles. And this is signifying the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then Peter stands up and preaches the very first evangelistic message and tells the Jewish people to come to Christ and 5,000 people come to Jesus on that one day. It's absolutely remarkable. The church is born on that day. And then the church of Jerusalem becomes very, very strong and powerful. It's the center of Christianity, right? Right. But in Acts chapter eight, a massive persecution breaks out. And so the church, all the people in Jerusalem that were Christians leave and they go back to their own home. This is called the Great Diaspora, which is Greek for dispersion, okay. uh, where we get the word dispersion. So everybody goes back to their hometown, and they start setting up churches and preaching the gospel of Christ in their hometown. So it's really interesting that it was a persecution and suffering of people that caused the that church caused to grow. It to grow, right? <laughs> yeah, to become decentralized. It, it thrived under that pressure. Yeah, and it happened right after Stephen, the deacon, was martyred. He was stoned to death, okay? Then, this is what's really interesting. The church became free of the Judaizers with the destruction of Judaism uh, or of Jerusalem by the Romans in AD 70. So, just prior to that, all of the Jews were uh, exiled from Rome. So, if you were Jewish and you lived in Rome, you had to leave. So, they left. And then Vespasian sent his son Titus, who then became the emperor later, to go down there. And after three year siege, he starves out the people of Jerusalem. The city falls. And the emperor at that time says to Titus, Hey, go in there, and I want you to remove every stone on top of any other stone. So, that's when the the temple was completely destroyed. This was the second temple that Herod had built. So it was totally destroyed. And to this day, that temple has never been rebuilt. Hmm. The The Wailing Wall, the Holy Wall, the most holy site of Judaism today in Jerusalem, if you go on a trip there, you'll see it, is simply the stones of the retaining wall. Okay. The, so there's a retaining wall that lifts up what they call the Temple Mount. So you walk up, and then you'll get you get to walk up on it. And that's today. There's a Muslim mosque up there, but you get up there, and man, it just brings into such clarity what's going. on. You can put five football fields up there on the Temple Mount. Mm. It is massive how big it is up there. But in AD seventy, they went in there, and Herod's Temple that he had built was up there. They totally destroyed it. And as a matter of fact, if you go to Rome today and you visit the Colosseum right next to the Colosseum is Titus's arch 
And on the inside of Titus's arch, it was an arch that was designed to honor all of his victories and exploits. One of the things that's carved on the inside of it as you go is you see the Roman soldiers carrying off the Jewish menorah and the Jewish tablets and the Jewish so sacred things from the temple. all the stuff. Yeah, back to Rome. Okay. So it's really really amazing history. But the point I want you to notice in this historical event is that that's when this heresy of Judaizers was basically put to death is when the city of Jerusalem was destroyed. When it was basically... Yeah, because see, they it was incongruent. They couldn't say, well, you can follow Christ and be a Jew because if we keep the covenant as Jews, the old covenant, guess what? We will become our own nation. Right. Well, the temple was destroyed, and that put any dream of that dream to of death. Idea coming, okay. Yeah, just killed it. So, what? So basically, all of these massive shifts took place, and w- what happened is it actually made the church stronger in the crisis, not weaker. And I think that's really an important part. Is he kind of talks and lays out and mentions this basic heresy because we see that playing out in history. Well, I mean, I, it seems almost like Paul and Jesus were accustomed to being salty. I mean, we, <laughs> yes, we they always were. see Jesus as you know, we see him as those those photos you see in like kidsmen, yeah. right? Where he's just like super Bring nice all the kids to me, and yeah. he is gentle. He has the capacity, but as you've talked about many times, the 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 word gentle implies a strength and a yeah. power that you have to restrain in order to yes. to demonstrate gentility, mm-hmm. right? And so Jesus and Paul weren't 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 afraid to get a little salty. Especially Jesus, especially <laughs> so with like the salty. Pharisees yeah. and the oh, Sadducees yeah. and all of those guys, he would get real, real passionate about them. Yeah. And hey, he even cursed a tree because it didn't have any fruit right. on it. <laughs> and I think most people think, forget that kind of idea of, of um, Jesus and yeah. Paul being these authentic, Strong, strong men that yeah. were weren't afraid to be a little offensive. I mean, they weren't running through the streets, you know, yeah. dropping f bombs, but they were definitely Absolutely. forces of nature that yeah. you you noticed, right? Yeah. And we should believe that. And 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 that idea that they are these weak people, I think, can undermine our faith. Yeah. But if you think about them as these strong, powerful men that fought for goodness, they were those people that were like, "We're going to stand up for what's right." that gives you a different kind of strength as mm-hmm. especially as a man to look up and be like oh i can follow that kind of a guy right yeah exactly i think look at what paul says next if someone thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh i have more mm. circumcised on the eighth day the people of israel tribe benjamin hebrew of hebrews regard the law pharisee as for zeal persecuting the church as for righteousness based on the law flawless this is basically his list of of qualifications of why he should be able to brag about how cool he is, right? Yeah, and I think it's salty. He's saying, look, what these guys are saying goes, you want to play that game? I'll play that game with you, man, and I'll put you to shame. I'll send it here because you guys don't even come close to me in that arena. And the, the way in which our faith is undermined, Paul is saying, is when we try and strengthen it by putting our confidence in something other than Jesus. And what we primarily tend to do is we put our confidence in our own accomplishments, right? Mm, That's what we tend to do. And in the system of the Judaizers, you know, that game that they were playing, Paul says, I outdistance you, right? And so I can out-argue you. I will beat you every single time. And what's interesting is I think the Philippians were the 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 notion that you have to accomplish things appealed to them because that was the whole Roman 
ethos. Right. That's a whole vibe. So when the Judaizers came through, at first they kind of thought, oh, well, maybe, yeah, we love Jesus now. We'll do anything he wants, and here's all the rules. We want to follow more rules. And Paul says, no, 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 don't go down that path. He's saying, look, you, I know you. it appealed to you before, but now you've been justified by Christ, so don't go back and try to you know, justify yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? I mean, it seems like Paul's really laying down some logical progression of how we're of how mm-hmm. we undermine our own faith by yeah. believing in the wrong things, right? Yes, yes. Um, like we say, what you believe is one of the most important things about you, and we can constantly tell ourselves things and convince ourselves to believe things that are very wrong, and that can lead us down a very destructive path. All the time. I, I mean, uh, it, it's. I think a lot of people that have grown up where their parents split up mm-hmm. um, or... Maybe they're raised in a single parent home because, you know, their parents never got married and stuff, all the craziness of the 60s and the 70s and so forth, is in 80s, people who grew up under that, they really struggle with value. So, like, if they make a mistake or they don't live up to expectations or they fail at something in their life, instead of saying, wow, I made a mistake or I failed at that, you know what they do? They go, I'm a failure. Mm. I have no value. They, they look to those things to be definitions of who they are right exactly and i'll never achieve that i can't do it so what they do is they make identity statements and then value statements about themselves and that's why they're believing falsehoods about themselves and when you believe falsehoods about yourself what do you do you tend to be more depressed you tend to have more anxiety you tend to struggle in relationships you struggle with these things and and so look at what paul says next he goes whatever gains to me I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost everything. Now I consider everything I lost garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. This is the most important phrase, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law or my achievements or my abilities, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Notice what he's saying. Where does your validation come from? I could play the game the Judaizers are playing. I could play that and and win all day long, but it never worked. You Mm. see, just like you can uh, uh, have childhood trauma and you can grow up and you can achieve and become the wealthiest person ever. You know, look at Howard Hughes and guess what? It will never help you know your value because the world and the kingdom of this world is incapable of establishing a foundational objective value for who you are as a person. I mean, the primary way, so what I'm hearing you say is basically if we want real true joy and we want to safeguard it, we need to be placing our validation and our righteousness in Jesus, not ourselves, because we're a shaky foundation at best, and the world is even more so. (laughs) Um, And so trying to base it off of our works and the things we've accomplished or who, you know, even, I mean, these days it's like who, what your sexual identity is or your skin color is, and that's your validation, right? And it's like none of those things 
matter and none of them are going to fill the heart you the hole that you have in your in that your is life correct. right and that joy will just eventually you'll constantly be chasing trying to keep your joy up and it's not real joy it's just momentary happiness right yeah and that the thing is is that whenever you try to build your identity in something other than christ you're using the world's you know appeal to try to do it mm. so anybody who comes along and says well you can't build your identity around that you see that as a threat you always will and you respond negatively like for instance um people who have a sexual orientation towards the same sex and those i want to have sex with people who are of my gender right and so we call that homosexuality now what happens is when you say that well that is a sin then of course they say okay you're saying my very identity is a sin but for and so they see it as moralism and so you then are phobic right mm -hmm. and your position is phobic it's bigoted and needs to be changed that's the response to it but what the bible's saying is this and says says well first and foremost you don't understand the term sin the term sin is missing the mark right you're not you're not gonna you're missing the mark right you know um and so it's not a you've failed it's you're, you're not close enough to the truth. And what the Bible says over and over and over again is that the only thing that can bring you a true authentic identity, right, is Jesus because it's outside of the material world. Mm. And if you have a soul, if you're sentient, if you're human conscious, right, and you are a free moral being, not what the atheists say you are, then you cannot build a identity around anything in this material construct because it's circular reasoning. So you can't build an identity around your desire of who you like to have sex with, whether it's you like to have sex with multiple people, with people of the same gender, people with either gender or with nobody. It, you see what you do is when you take a desire and you try to build an identity around it, you've totally missed the mark. Right. And so you're, guess what? You're not going to be able to walk in the fullness of joy. Mm. See that that's really what the point is all about it. Um, the, the, the thing is we tend to place our righteousness on our own desires, on our own wants, our own achievements, our own accolades, even our own experiences. It does not allow us when we do this to let go of the path, of our past, right? We cannot let it fly away uh, because when we build our identity on these things, our past mistakes, right, have to always be figured into the equation. This is why he says the following words. Not that I have already obtained this. So he says, I haven't obtained a full identity built on Christ and not my own accolades. I'm still working towards that, mm -hmm. he says. But I have not already arrived at my goal. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. This is say, Jesus saved me for this purpose. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taking hold of it, but this is one thing I do. I forget what lies behind and strain towards what is ahead. I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I must press on towards the call of Christ. I do this by focusing on his righteousness and not my own. 
I have always wondered if in my own personal life, when you think about it, I've wondered, well, does this make you a less ambitious person or driven person or desire to be productive, right? Because if it's like, well, you know, my value as a person isn't based on what I produce, right? Mm. You know, I, I'm not bringing value to the table in an economic sense. So, so you could see your... You could see it as being like, well, none of this matters, so I'm not going to do it. So why try? Right. So I've thought about that over and over again. And the thing that I talked about earlier is I think this principle does the exact opposite. Because the thing I talked about earlier is that our identity is built around drives and desires and those types of things. And what I have found over time is that the people who are the most effective, the people who are the most productive are the people who are the most calm and at peace. They're not so pressured and stressed out about the outcome, right? You look at, you look at people who ski for a living and they always say the guy who's all tensed up trying to win never wins it's the person who's the most relaxed right right you look at that in football the person who moves the most now in dance can you win the dancing competition by being tense no or what do you do you have to relax and just right. let it flow and not worry about the outcome and then those people always end up doing what better better so you see how that principle uh, allows us to let go. That's our biggest problem is we can't let go of the past. Mm. So it, this is really honestly probably one of the biggest challenges for every adult, right? Yeah, for all forgetting of us. Forgetting what lies behind, forgetting about those mistakes, forgetting about the trauma. We seem to carry with us from these past things all these things that really influence us and how we experience today and it definitely affects what we 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 want to do tomorrow, right? Absolutely, so yeah. All that stuff in the past, letting go is probably one of the hardest things you can ask an adult person to do is say, yeah. I need you to not worry about what happened in the past, but instead I want you to focus on me and what I have in plan for you. And that's that's like ridiculously challenging. And you can't do that if you base your value on your achievements. Right, because that would say I have to disregard everything that I've done. And then exactly. that gives me no value because that's where my entire identity is <laughs> built. Yeah, you can't, you you cannot forgive yourself if your righteousness comes from what? Your achievements or your desires, right? right? If you try to build an identity of who you are around your desires and wants, it, it just doesn't work. That's mm. what he's saying over and over again is that you lose. You lose. You can't ever be free from the past because you can't forgive yourself. You can't discover anything new. You can't be free of the bondage of the past because you'll always carry around guilt. You, you feel so ashamed of all that. And I think that we tend to place our righteousness, in other words, the thing that makes us feel value about ourselves and give ourselves value on all of these things. Mm. And only when we learn the biblical truth of taking it off of these things and placing it where it's meant to be on Christ Jesus and Christ alone, alone uh, we will never actually heal, we'll never actually be free, and we'll never be able to move forward. This is why the next thing he says in verse 17 is he says, look, join together in following my example. He says, I haven't obtained it yet, but at least I'm on the right path. Mm. Follow my example. Brothers and sisters, just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we live. 
For, as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mindset is on earthly things. So these are people he's describing that say they don't get this truth. So they say, I'm a Christian, but they're still trying to live in the world's kingdom. And they're, they're shaming themselves and trying to f- justify their lives based on their own achievements or their own rationality. Right. You know, they're making up their new rules. He goes on to say that their God is their stomach. And this is his way of saying, when, when you're driven by your wants and your desires and try to build an identity around that, he goes, you are living in the earthly kingdom. Therefore, the best thing you can do, the most practical thing that you can do is be around the right people, the right exempt, uh, examples, the right mentors that really uh, uh, can make a huge difference in your faith and who you are becoming. He says these people, these Judaizers and other people are enemies of the cross. You see, if a person lives in the kingdom of this world, they ultimately become an enemy of God. And so many people don't want to know that. Some people are like, well, how do I live in this world? You know, how do I build a house and how do I get food and how do I, that's not what he's talking about. Right. What he's talking about is these values of building yourself, your sense of, of who I am, my identity around earthly things mm-hmm. instead of the righteousness that comes from Christ, right? I want to know the, his suffering. I want to know his, his uh, death so that I may also achieve the resurrection from the dead. So he's talking about that issue. And he says, look, if you live in this area over here, you become an enemy of God. James wrote in chapter four, verse four, he goes, you are adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. So he's saying, you can't do both. You can't say, well, I'm going to put my value on my wants and desires that I'm going to build my whole identity around my sexual orientation. You, you, you can do that. You're allowed to do that. <laughs> you know, you are a free sovereign being. We have choice. We could do whatever we want. But his point is, is that if you do that, then you're an enemy of experiencing the righteousness of God and the kingdom of God, which allows you to do what? Walk in the fullness of joy. Right. Okay. And, and so it's, it's like, I really can't do both. And that's the problem with postmodernism in our world today is people are trying to do both. We'll unpack that on Thursday quite a bit. Um, notice what he ends this off with in chapter uh, three, verse 20. He goes, remember... Our citizenship is in heaven. And what have we been talking about? The kingdom. Yeah, the kingdom. Remind yourself of where you're a citizen. You're a citizen of the new kingdom. He goes, we eagerly await a savior from there. So Jesus came and established the kingdom. Now he's talking about the second coming where it's all underneath him. He goes, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So notice what he's saying is he go, even now, as we struggle through this, we're going to be able to surrender this body that struggles and we're going to have a glorious body. Mm. And that glorious body is going to be like, I mean, nothing you could imagine. Right. And so the whole point that he's saying is you were meant for joy, built for joy, but be Beware of these paths because ultimately they undermine your joy. 
Well, thank you, Pastor, for sharing all of those wonderful thoughts about Chapter 3 of Philippians. I'm sure we're going to be unpacking a lot more things on <laughs> Thursday about yes. application of these things. But please, guys, I just want to encourage you, make sure you're reading these chapters on your own. This is such a short book. There's no reason not to read through Philippians at, at yes. least once a week, if not more, in preparation of hearing these sermons and these messages, because you're going to get so much more out of it the more you read it and really understand it and take it to heart. So please be reading these chapters. Um, read the whole book of Philippians. It's only four chapters. It, it's really not a Very short. And uh, you're going to be so blessed by taking the time of doing that. Thank you guys so much for joining us, and we'll see you on Thursday here on the Salty Pastor Podcast. Blessings!